Welcome to the In the Scriptures podcast. The following Bible lesson was previously recorded. Alright, for Brother Mike, I'm wearing this, this, this different mic, and I have never worn one of these. So if I like start panicking, it's probably because of this. And I can already tell I'm really coming through the sound system, aren't I? Okay. It looks good. Okay. I look like a preacher. If I was just taller now, right? Anyway. That's embarrassing. If I if I had to step up on a stool. Okay. Well, anyway, I'll try to keep the decibels reasonable. <laughs> But uh, I think for those with the, seriously with the assisted hearing and such, this actually makes the difference, is the trick, so to speak. Uh, so we'll we'll work with this and maybe adjust over the coming weeks, make it a little better. We have been in a study of the work of the church, and uh, I've really enjoyed digging into some of these uh, really basics, if you will, and spending time on it. Uh, and I hope that you have benefited from it as well. And, and what we did to begin with was we went through and we just said, well, what uh, is the local church to do according to the Scriptures? And uh, we introduced that by looking at Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, we're taught that there's one church, there's one faith, there's one hope. You know, we're all looking for this one thing. And yet we have apostles, teachers, elders, etc., and all of and ministers, and then all of us as members of one another that are a part of this body of Christ. And as we're a part of this body of Christ, all together like this, there's work to be done. Each part does its share to cause edification and growth. And, you know, it still then begs the question, okay, well, what all do we do? Because obviously this is not the only text to look at, Ephesians 4 in particular. So what is the local church to do? And we introduce that by looking at just some of the very basic things, such as assemble together, observe the Lord's Supper, sing praises to God, edify one another in song, pray with one another and for one another, preach and teach God's Word, take up a monetary collection uh, specifically for the use of uh, benevolence to needy saints and also the furtherance of the gospel. Support the preaching of the gospel, both monetarily but also just uh, by, by encouragement, prayers, resources, going ourselves to teach the lost as much as possible. And then along with that monetary collection, the fallout is also to care for the needy saints. And that is certainly the work of the local church. And when we looked at all those things as kind of the, the top level. This is what the Scriptures show us very clearly in the New Testament text. And so then we said, well, now let's look at each one individually and spend a little more time on it. Last week, we talked about assembling together and seeing what that really means as we dive into the individual scriptures themselves uh, as we assemble together. We assemble to worship, to teach, to give, to share in evangelism, to bear with one another, to, dis to, to use discipline when needed among the unruly to stir up love and good works for the elders to be able to feed and shepherd the flock. And then ultimately, going back to Ephesians 4, that verse 16, it's to grow and edify one another together in Christ. So this morning, we're going to talk about this point of observing the Lord's Supper. We've already done that this morning, and I believe done it scripturally and very well. Uh, we had a, a, a song, Breaking of Bread, that outlined the, the entire sentiment behind what it is that we are coming together to do when we observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, 
Brother Ted did an excellent job of directing our minds to the emblems, the bread and the fruit of the vine, and focusing our attention on remembering Christ uh, in that memorial uh, feast. But you know, the religious world is very divided about this. Uh, the religious world struggles with this. Uh, even among brethren in the churches of Christ, there have been debate and struggles throughout the years. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are different divisions that exist to this day uh, in one form or another, whether it be those who use one cup or it be those who will not observe the Lord's Supper on a Sunday night gathering or during a Sunday night gathering. There are just a number of different things that have always come up that cause a stir and cause troubles and ultimately divisions, even within the Lord's church. But you know, when you look at the Scriptures, the, the teaching of the Lord's Supper is very simple. And maybe that's, where, maybe that's where men have made a mess of it, because sometimes we can take the simplest of things and decide, well, that's too simple, so let's add this or add that, or let's question this or question that. And in many cases, we just need to take what the simple doctrine teaches and apply it to the very best of our ability. And so from that standpoint, I hope that what I represent to you and what I've proclaimed to you is just simply what the Scriptures say. And uh, I would certainly welcome any questions, comments, or uh, concerns that you may have after this as well. And I would invite you to come back tonight, if at all possible, when we open it up in more of a question and answer uh, class setting and hopefully can talk about some of this even in more depth. The reading for us there in Luke 22, I'm, I'm going to start there before even getting to my first real point here. But when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, not only there in, um, in Luke 22, but also in other gospel accounts, the same setting is uh, rehearsed to us or given back to us by the gospel writers. This is the Passover feast. And... The fact that it's the Passover feast is not to be, um, should I say, overlooked or lessened at all, because the fact that it's a Passover feast actually kind of gives to us the reason that this was done the way it was and the reason it was important in the way it was. Because if you remember back into the Old Testament and go back to Exodus, and even in Exodus 12 where the unleavened bread and, and the 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 sacraments, if you will, of the Passover were discussed. This was to be something that meant something to the people of God. And that carried all the way down in, in reading there in Luke 22, Jesus is going to observe that same Passover feast memorial remembrance with His disciples. And it's in that setting that Jesus then institutes or begins to turn his disciples' attention to what will be the new memorial for his followers. But the memorial is very much the same in many senses because the idea of the Passover was to remember God's salvation but also remember the severity of God, to remember what happened when God redeemed his people out of Egypt because there was a lot of death 
but there was also certainly deliverance. And when we look at the cross of Christ, we really see the same thing. You can't look at the cross of Christ and the suffering of our Savior without having your mind drawn to death and its gruesomeness and its severity and the sacrificial nature of which it was done by Jesus. But in the same token, when we understand what the cross means, we can't look at the cross without seeing deliverance, salvation, hope, resurrection, life, the very opposite of death even. And so it's, it's kind of a, an interesting scenario to be looking at an event that can show you both. And the Passover did that for the children of Israel. They were forced to think about death while at the same time being able to rejoice regarding deliverance. And the cross of Christ does the same for us as His followers. We are forced to look at death, but at the same time we're also realizing the hope of deliverance, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, life, etc. So I just kind of want to point that in the, out in the very beginning, that it's in this setting that Jesus speaks the words that He speaks. As a matter of fact, in verse 15 in Luke's account, He says, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He specifically want, wanted to be there and do this thing. And he says, for, in verse 16, I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's a fulfillment coming. There's an end to all this coming, a change coming. And so then he gives his new take on this Passover feast. Verse 17, he took the cup and gave thanks. Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we have the cup, the fruit of the vine, the first emblem of this, the first piece of this supper that is shown here by Jesus. In verse 19, And He took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Here we have the second emblem, the second piece of this memorial, and we have the purpose of the entire memorial stated by Jesus. Do this in remembrance of Me. In verse 20, likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This shows that it's a new thing. In other words, the Passover is not going to be the same, or not going to be the remembrance of me going forward. This is going to be new, a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So some of those things just lay the groundwork to this. Why is this important? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this such an important part of the work of the church? Well, I hope that we can see that just in looking at what Jesus said when He instituted the Lord's Supper, when He instituted His new memorial. Because that's what the Passover was. It was a memorial to remember what God had done. And now it's going to be a remembrance of what Christ has done. Well, let's go to Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 11. You might want to just kind of hold a finger in both places. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. Because these are the two passages that in so many ways sum up the main points that we need to know about the practice of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament church. Because that's what we really want to get down to now. So we see that Jesus... Uh, had this vision for this and this plan for this that He gives to His disciples. The next question is, well, when did it start happening? And how do we do it? And, you know, all of those kind of things. 
And Acts 20 and, and also 1 Corinthians 11 give us the most kind of pinpointed view of those couple of things. In Acts 20 and verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message to midnight. We read this text in talking about assembling together even and kind of, uh, unpacked it a little bit and thinking about them being together on this first day of the week and they obviously were in a worship assembly kind of scenario. Well, here there's a phrase that's key to all this and that is when the disciples came together to break bread. And to the person who reads this that has no idea about any Jewish terminology, any religious terminology, etc. of the first century, they'd be like, break bread. What, what does that mean? Is that just an old way of saying, eat a meal? Okay. I mean, that's a legit question, isn't it? But as we study the culture and the times and the languages, that was not just a phrase for to eat a meal. It could be, but it, it rarely ever was. And so when you think about the disciples breaking bread, that's something to kind of keep in our mind, like, well, what, you know, what is that talking about? Hold your place there in Acts 20. The other thing is, it was on the first day of the week, and we dealt a lot with that with the worship assembly, but that was specifically told there in that text in Acts 20, verse 7. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, Paul is going to start talking to the church at Corinth specifically about their conduct in regard to the Lord's Supper. And so his instructions, corrections, teachings in this text are just invaluable for us to try to imitate the New Testament example, the Christian example, what was approved by the apostles and put in place by the apostles in all the churches. So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church. Now here's another, that's a key thing. So when are they doing this? They're doing this when they come together as a church. That goes back to what we talked about last week, when they assembled. And we saw that throughout all of the evidence, they assembled on the first day of the week. That's when they came together. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Verse 19, for there must... Also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So they've got the problem of division among them. Okay? You know, we've got a problem of division today, don't we? This blue tape that's on the aisles. You know, we've got a problem of division. But, but they had some serious problems of division, apparently, among them. And that's something that is condemned in the New Testament repeatedly. And we need to be wary of that ourselves and not let there be any division in the church. So then in verse 20, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place... Again, now he's, he said when, we, when you come together at least three times already. And he's also talked about in one place at least two specific ways. When he says when you come together as a church. And now he says specifically when you come together in one place. So it's pretty clear. Again, just taking the text for what it says. This is when they assembled as a church. He says it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So he's... Again, remember, he's giving them instructions in which he's not praising them. So he's using a negative connotation here to say, when you come together as a church, you're not doing the right thing, basically. You're not doing the right thing. You're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper properly. And so he says in verse 21, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Now, this sounds really extreme, doesn't it? 
I mean, when's the last time that you gathered with the Lord's church on a Sunday morning and somebody was drunk? Don't answer that. No, I mean, but seriously, we just, this is extreme, okay? It sounds very extreme. But, but there was definitely a division, a disconnect, a mess up of what was supposed to be happening concerning the Lord's Supper. That they were not doing it together. It was disjointed. One already has it, another's waiting on it, you know, whatever. And, and one's hungry. You know, they came there looking for a meal. And another one's drunk, came there already having too much. You know, you, it's just, it's really messed up and disjointed in what they're doing. And so there's an exclamation at the beginning of verse 22. What? It's an exclamation, it's not even a question. What? Yeah. Like, hold on, <laughs> you know. Hello. That might be the today's term for it, the way Lance would say it. Hello, you know. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Really pointed question. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? So what is, what you know, just natural thinking here would say, well, what did it more look like they were doing instead of the Lord's Supper in this instance? It, it's more like they were having a meal, a common meal. Maybe we might even think about it like a potluck, um, a buffet gathering, because that, that's kind of what happens with something like that. People may come and go. You know, somebody's got to be at the head of the line and somebody's at the tail end of the line. And, and it can be a little bit disjointed, but everybody's okay with that because there's plenty of food on the table, you know, and, and stuff like that. But... He's saying, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? This is not supposed to be about eating and drinking. This is a memorial. So then he goes on to say there in verse 22, Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So he brings the church into it real immediately. Do you despise the church of God? In other words, this also backs up that this was not what was being done in all the churches. In other words, Corinth, you're doing it wrong. This is not how it was taught. This is not how it's to be practiced. Are you at odds specifically against all of the churches? The church of God. And then he talks about those who have nothing. Again, the division was pretty evident here. You know, this is not to be something where some get it, some don't. Some are treated to this opportunity and some are not. This was not the way it was to be. What shall I say to you at the end of verse 22? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And then he's going to go on to remind them of what they actually were taught to do. And this is what undoubtedly was taught in all the churches. And that's the way that it's... As you look at what the missionaries did, Paul and Peter and others... It, you get this repetitive understanding that they were going and teaching the same thing in all the churches. So what does he say in verse 23? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. We just read of this account in Luke. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds this in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
And so Paul makes it very clear that we've got to get back to what Jesus said. And that is the bread and the cup and doing it in remembrance of Him. If, if one's full and one's hungry and one's drunk and one has nothing, then the, the purpose of the whole thing has obviously been lost. So you've got to get to a place where what you're doing is with the right emblems and for the right reason. With the cup, with the bread, and in remembrance of Him. And he explains this further, or teaches on this further, beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So here's a warning from Paul that this is not to be done in an unworthy manner. That we're to examine ourselves. Well, again, this takes out the idea of hunger. You know, this is not a meal to quench a hunger. This is not a drinking to quench a thirst or to produce drunkenness. No, this is to remember our Lord and to reflect and examine ourselves in view of that. It has a specific purpose, just like the Passover. Now, the people in Corinth, many of them, no doubt, probably were not Jews as they became Christians. But for the Jews who became Christians, this should have really been an easy transition because they understood what it meant to sit and to eat a Passover meal. And it was much more of a meal, the Passover meal, but the point of that Passover meal was to remember what the Lord had done. And so it wouldn't have been that difficult of a transition for them to change from taking the Passover meal to now partaking of the Lord's Supper and saying, now we remember our Lord on the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb. And we look forward to Him coming again. For the Corinthian brethren, this may have been a little more difficult to understand because they maybe had come out of idolatry and come out of the paganism of the day and the things that you know, really might have made it more difficult to understand this memorial, somber setting in which Jesus was to be remembered. And so he says in verse 30 to them, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Many are spiritually dead. You're not, you're not right in the eyes of God. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, can I, can I expound on that for a second? If Paul, it's like Paul saying, If I didn't tell you this, you'd just keep on doing what you're doing. You know, we, we don't like to be corrected just by our nature. But there are times in which we need correction. We don't like to be judged by our nature. But there are times in which we need to be judged and subjected to a judgment so that we can learn, so that we can evaluate, so that we can make changes, so that we can grow. And so as he's teaching the Corinthian brethren, you think they're going to like hearing this? I mean, probably not. This is a pretty direct judgment upon them that you are not doing... I don't praise you in this. That's a very kind way of saying you're wrong. You're wrong. But if we were left to judge our own selves, would we judge our own selves? No. Verse 32, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So Paul turns it back to say, Look, you came to Christ to be saved. 
You came to God to be saved from this world, to have hope outside of this world. So see it for what it is. See it for what it is. The judgment needs to be viewed in such a way as to change us, to take that chastisement and change us so that we're not of this world. So then he says a couple of other commands to them. Verse 33, 34. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat... Now here's that, when you come together again. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is another key in how this is to be done. This is not a buffet line. This is not a come-when-you-can disjointed thing. This is when you're together and you're doing it together. When you're together and you're partaking of this together. That's really simple and really clear. Verse 34, But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. This also answers something, doesn't it? This is not to be a full-fledged meal designed to satisfy hunger. That's not the point. Some might say even today, well, why do we use little small pieces of bread or you know things? Well, because the point is not to, to fill our belly in a meal. And that's indicated here by Paul. When you don't, if you're hungry, eat at home. This is worship. This is worship. It's an observance of the Lord's Supper. Lest you come together for judgment. In other words, when you go that direction, as he said earlier, I do not praise you. (laughs) It's not correct. It's not what you should do. And then he says, the rest I will set in order when I come. I wish I knew the rest. Don't you? Now some of it we probably can learn from... uh, from 2 Corinthians. If you read 2 Corinthians, we, you know, we get some of the rest in all likelihood because he had much to tell the church at Corinth and to teach them. But what I want you to see in this text is that there's a really simple explanation giving of, of the Lord's Supper and what not to do. And by telling them what not to do, it really shows us really clearly what we should do. It's when we come together as a church... The emblems are backed up just by what Jesus said, the bread and the fruit of the vine. It's to be done together. It's not a common meal. It's not to fill our bellies. It's to be in remembrance of Jesus. It's a memorial. We're to examine ourselves. It's a time of somber thought, reflection, gratitude, and remembrance. Well, just by reminder, I'm going to walk through some other points here kind of quickly. I may not look at all these verses. Number one, it was observed by Jesus and His disciples first. We looked at that text in Luke 22, but it's also found in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. And so the Gospel writers give us those accounts where Jesus did this with His disciples first. You know, I think that's important because when you start looking at major teachings in the New Testament. To me, it really hits harder when I can read what Jesus says about it, and then I can read what the apostles said about it, and then even harder when I can see examples of the early church practicing it. And the Lord's Supper is one of those things where we have Jesus talking about it, we have the apostles teaching about it, and we have examples of the early church doing it. That's powerful, okay, in all of those ways. 
The breaking of bread, you know, we need to understand that. Look at Acts chapter 2 with me. This is a, a text that uses this phraseology, and it's something that we can discern between two different ones, perhaps. In Acts chapter 2, remember, this is the day of Pentecost, really when the church begins. When Peter commanded them in verse 38 to repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Uh, and there were many of them that gladly received his word in verse 41. About 3,000 souls were added to them. Then notice verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And it really seems that that list right there is, is showing a worship outline, if you will. It was the apostles' doctrine. It was the breaking of bread. It was fellowship and prayers. It's a very spiritual, you can just see the spiritual thread you know, running through that. And then, as it, it talks about things outside of the worship as well. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So again, this is, a, this is they're growing, it's spreading. All who believed were together. They were together, had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Then verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now this is a little different using of the same thing. And you notice it says breaking bread instead of what it says in verse 42, breaking of bread. And I thought that's a little tweak on it, but there's a difference there. And then it says from house to house. So knowing what Paul later says to the church at Corinth, what did he say about houses? He said, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And the point here in verses 45 and following there in Acts chapter 2 is that these disciples were spending time together every single day. They were selling their possessions to help one another and they were eating together from house to house. But even in this context back in verse 42, the breaking of bread in this religious type term is placed there too. So there are some today who seem to still want to teach for some reason, that the Lord's Supper is a common meal. The idea of gathering around a table and having a full-fledged meal. And to that I would say, I don't understand that because that's simply not what the Scriptures say. As a matter of fact, there's evidence that we're being told, don't do that. Specifically by Paul. And even the separation there in Acts chapter 2. So I would just note that. That's something that I don't know if you've heard it or not. But when you read breaking of bread, don't stumble over it. Work to understand it in the context and what's being said and who it's being said to and such. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, for instance, when it says, upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, there was that idea they were coming together as a church for that purpose. And so we wouldn't have assumed it was just a common meal because of the setting and everything else that was going on. The emblems. Again, it really, this is something that's not, uh, should not be a cause for concern or, or a mistake made with this. The fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. That's going back even to Exodus. Those were parts of the sacraments of the, the Passover feast itself. Getting all the leaven out of the house. And there are those who want to maybe make a distinction or concern about 
the, the fruit of the vine was this fermented or unfermented and you know things like that. We might have some of that discussion tonight. But the basic of what it is is still not disputed. Fruit of the vine. In that day and time, that was the grapevine. There are some who even today might dispute which exact fruit of the vine it even is and things like that. But most biblical scholars have never really debated about it. It's been pretty clear. Uh, you know, in the Church of Christ, it's Concord grape juice, right? It, it better be. Concord 100% grape juice. Now, I just kind of point that out to get us a little chuckle because, you know, let's stick with the Scriptures and exactly what the Scriptures say. Is there more ways to get fruit of the vine, grape juice, than Concord? Yeah. So be careful. We can get like, you know, blazoned this idea of a labeling of something that's not actually in the Scriptures. Christians are partakers of this. I haven't really emphasized this, but some will say, well, who partakes? Who participates in this? Well, it's, in every New Testament example, it's the believers, it's the disciples, it's the Christians. So this is not for children. This is not for those who don't believe. It's not for the general audience, if you will. This is for believers, for the disciples, when they come together. Because it is that proclamation of faith and belief. When? We've kind of answered that throughout what we've said, but when? You know, Acts 20 and verse 7 is the simplest example of that. It was on the first day of the week when they came together. And when you juxtapose that with what is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, then you kind of get like a full picture because, again, Paul writing to the same group of people in which he talked about them coming together as a church, coming together as a church, etc., 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 in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches. So again, here's this background of, you're not the only ones, I'm telling this to everybody, to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And so put two and two together. What's very obvious? The disciples were coming together when? On the first day of the week. What were they doing on the first day of the week? All of these acts of worship, we're seeing it one way or another practiced every first day of the week. There are many in the religious world who simply do not practice the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. They might do it on Easter Sunday. They might do it on Christmas Sunday. They might do it once a quarter. They might even do it on Saturday. And to all of those things, I would say, show me the Scripture as to why you do that. And the answer to all of those things, I fervently believe, is there's no actual Scripture that will show you that that's why you do that once a quarter or only on Easter, or only on Christmas. The only like real Scripture conclusion you can come to is that the disciples were regularly coming together on the first day of the week. Which first day of the week? It's, it's never said. It always just says on the first day of the week. So which first day of the week are we going to come together on? Well, I would recommend we come together on every first day of the week. And it's also interesting that Paul points out that as often as you do this, 
there in 1 Corinthians 11. It makes it sound like, yeah, you're going to do this often. And as often as you do, you know, you do, as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Well, there's the simple version. Maybe be with us tonight and we can unpack some more of it. Because, you know, I, 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 I'm not a note person. I think y'all have gathered that already. But I have lots of notes on this. <laughs> because there's been so much written, there's been so much said, so much discussed. And I just say that to say, you may have real specific questions. This may have been a point of division between you and a family member or a friend. Uh, we have many and different denominational groups surrounding us that practice much different things and believe much different things. Um, I'm, you know, I'm of the mindset of let's find it in the Scriptures. And so I hope we can do that, and I hope what I've presented today has, has done that in this simple form here. But tonight, I'll, I'll come ready to answer the best I can. And if I don't have the answer, we'll try to find it. Uh, one way or another. This hasn't been a lesson to, to try to get you to come to Jesus, but our brother here has got a good song for it. Why keep Jesus waiting? Why keep Jesus waiting? I want to ask you that this morning as we close uh, this assembly together. You've got the opportunity to come to Jesus, to be buried with Him in baptism, to wash away your sins. You've got the opportunity to come back to Jesus, like that prodigal son that came back down that road to his father's house with his father meeting him, arms open. Our Heavenly Father will forgive us if we confess our sins, and maybe that's what you need to do today. Whatever your need is, we're going to take this time uh, during this invitation song to welcome you and ask you to come if there's any need that you have. Won't you come while we stand and sing?